Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to be going through verses 18 to 22 today. Uh, now, while you're turning there, in today's world, there's a very prevalent viewpoint in churches, not so much as it was mm, 10, 20 years ago, but, but the, the term that's been coined is seeker sensitivity. Um, what does that mean? Because that sounds actually really nice. It sounds you want to be sensitive to people. You want to be sensitive to people that may be seeking. Uh, I'm going to define it like this. Make the church look appealing to non-Christians by stripping away some of the harder things. That's how I'm going to define it just as a, a general movement. By the way, I realize that if you open your bulletins, it's upside down. That's my fault. Um, so, so to an extent, there's actually some wisdom in that, right? Like you don't want to you don't want to have some newcomer walk in and like start beating them over the head with some of the more difficult truths of Christianity. Right. Or, you know, somebody comes in, you don't want to say, hey, you rotten sinner. Welcome. <laughs> that, that's not going to do nothing. But but in terms of seeker sensitivity, I want to highlight two things just just real quick. One, you got to cater to the masses. So like if you all y'all that are here today, right? Um, my obligation in seeker sensitive understanding would be that I have to understand your felt needs, what you feel your needs are, and I've got to meet them. That's my requirement and seeker sensitivity. And number two, again, you can't say hard things. You can't, uh, you got to leave out the difficult doctrines of the Bible. You know, you can't let any of God's dirty laundry start airing in the open. Um, that's just a portion of seeker sensitivity. Why? Because, because it's a marketing gimmick. You want to grab people with the easiness, the gentleness, the wonderfulness of Christianity. You rope them in and then you beat them over the head with the fact that they're a sinner. Now, there are eternally sweet truths in Christ, and I'm not discrediting that. I'm not saying that we shouldn't focus on those things, that they're not good. Um, things that we as, a, as Christians will be enjoying forever and ever. But the Bible's an honest book. It deals with the difficult, the dirty, um, the, the, the destructive, the judgment. It deals with everything good and bad. Why? Because it's real. And anybody who's been alive for more than 10 seconds should recognize that life is real. And reality is not all sunshine and daisies. Today, in our text, Jesus is actually going to be talking about some of the difficulty of Christianity. And if uh, I find it ironic that is, today is a day that we have more people than we normally have uh, because it's a section of scripture that honestly I would love to avoid. Uh, <laughs> so so um, Jesus is going to be saying some hard things to these zealous people that we're going to read from. Um, so let's just let's just read our text for the day. So Matthew 8 verses 18 through 22. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. 
This is the word of the Lord. Most seeker sensitive verses I'll ever read. Uh, <laughs> so let's go through this bit by bit and make make uh, some applications, shall we? So I, I want you to take note of how Jesus responds to this massive crowd in verse 18. If we were a, uh, a church that wanted to cater to masses, we would want to bring them in, right? Have some great coffee, some really good donuts. I left cookies out there, but I forgot to open them, so you're welcome to those cookies. But uh, if, if, we, if, if we as a church wanted to make things look flashy just to bring people in, we could do that. I mean, we could spruce up the place. And there's goodness to having a spruced up place, right? We don't want to have a pile of dirt in a corner or like um, maybe, oh, uh, poor sweetie. Um, but we, we don't, we don't want to have the place look terrible, right? We want to, we want to make sure it looks nice when we're coming to worship, but we want to have it look nice for the Lord. Now, what Jesus does that I want you to take note of here is here he has a crowd of people. And instead of celebrating the mass of people that's coming to him, what does he do? He goes to the other side, the other side of what? The other side of a lake. And it's not the only time Jesus does this. Jesus does it a couple more times. Uh, in in uh, John 6, we have people go coming to like take Jesus by force and to make him be a ruler by force. They were going to overthrow the Roman government and, and institute King Jesus. And, uh, and, and in John 6, what, is, what does Jesus do? Slips through the crowd and walks away and goes up by himself on a mountain because that wasn't his plan. In uh, Matthew 14, Jesus does something similar. Uh, Jesus feeds 5,000 people, feeds them, gives them food and water. And then, uh, and then what, does he, what does he do after feeding all these people? He tells his disciples, hey, go to the other side. Go to the other side of the lake. Get out of here. And then later in uh, Matthew 15, um, the people come to him again and they're like, Jesus, where'd you go? We, we were with you and then you were gone. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. You didn't come to see me because of what I said. You came to see me because I fed you. So Jesus doesn't just slip away this one time, but it, he is slipping away. And I don't want us to miss that. He sees a crowd. This crowd comes to him and then he goes, all right, guys, let's go to the other side of the mountain. Let's go to the other side of the lake. Let's get out of here. Why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus retreat from people that are coming to him. Jesus is withdrawing probably to test those in the crowd, to see who might come after him, not for his eyes, his own eyes to see, but for the people to see. By the way, that's kind of the way God works today. Sometimes you feel like you've been bait and switched by God. God gives you some massive, wonderful blessing, but then he feels so distant. Why? because we need our own hearts checked. Uh, I, so I was once a part of a youth group and uh, the youth group was going really well. And then one day it wasn't. Why it wasn't, totally, totally uh, not part of the story really. But one day it wasn't. And you know what happened? The youth group fell apart. And we went from 35 kids to five. We had to see. We had to see who was coming for the Lord and who was coming for something else. And we had to see for our own selves. Why were we coming? We had to ask ourselves that question. 
So Jesus does this even now. Whenever massive crowds start coming, whenever people start coming to him, whenever things start going good, oftentimes that's when the Lord removes his hand of blessing and tests those who are really, truly faithful. So that's really what Jesus is doing in verse 18. He's, he's letting people see what is actually their, 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 their vehement, zealous devotion to him. Is it actually vehement and zealous or is it just, just because? Because by nature, we will, if we see a crowd, uh, we will want to see what's going on. And that may have been what was happening to Jesus. People were coming to him for all sorts of reasons. And now there's people coming up to him, maybe because it's just a crowd. And that's presumption. But we can know for sure that Jesus walked away from him. Physically. So Jesus knows who's going to follow him. Why do I say that? Because he knows exactly how to respond to the two people that are mentioned in Matthew chapter 8. And if you're following with the flow of the story of Matthew chapter 8, Jesus is doing this mirac these miraculous works, right? We got cleansing a leper, the, the cleansing of a, of, a, of a centurion servant from a distance. We've got many being healed. And now is this weird thing that Jesus says, right smack dab in the middle of, middle of the chapter. But it has its purpose. So let's, let's reread what Jesus says to these two people and what these two people are saying. So verse 19, and a scribe came up to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me go and bury my father, or let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Not the most friendly of verses. So this message is titled The Difficulty of Being a Christian, because Jesus is actually setting two very important and consistent notes throughout the whole of the New Testament, and actually in hindsight, the whole of the Old Testament. In these, two verse, or in these verses, Jesus is addressing two people with two particular problems. The scribe in verse 19 is apparently really excited to follow Jesus. While this other person in verse 21 is already a disciple who's feeling the call of duty to perform a, a cultural ritual. And that makes sense. Your dad dies. You want to go bury your dad. Got to go be with your family. Mom's grieving. Sisters are grieving. Everybody's grieving. You got to be there. You got to be strong for them. The scribe is declaring his, his desire to follow Christ while the disciple is expressing his desire to care for his family. Those are two good things, right? You want to follow Christ? You want to follow your family? Notice the way Jesus responds to the scribe first, though. The scribe plainly says, <clears throat> teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Where's Jesus going? What, yeah, what's he, what is he going to do? The cross. How's, how's he doing things right now? What's going on? What, what's Jesus's mission, his purpose, his goal? The scribe is saying, I'm going to go wherever you go. But Jesus drops a warning. He drops something that actually might make this guy turn around and walk away. Uh, just as a, as a point of fact, I once got an argument with a gentleman as I was sitting in a desk 
uh, at, 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 uh, in Chicago. It was a homeless guy who was yelling at me that Jesus was homeless. And we had to make myself and the president of the theological seminary were both talking to this guy. It was just by providence that, uh, that the, the president came down and was like hanging out with me. Um, but, uh, but this, this guy was trying to say, Jesus was homeless. You know, foxes have, have dens, birds have nests and the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He was homeless, but he wasn't homeless. He was itinerant, which meant he traveled. Jesus didn't have a home of his own, but also remember that Jesus's home base is in Capernaum. So Jesus was probably sleeping at Peter's cause that's where Peter lived. He did have a place to lay his head, but what he's saying is not, is not that, he, that he's homeless. He's, he's making the statement that, that he doesn't have anywhere consistent. When you guys are done with your day's work, do you go back to the same bed that you, went, that you woke up from? Yeah. Do you, uh, do you have a place to call your own? Maybe a, maybe a collection of fine china? Maybe you just moved and you had to pack up that fine china. Uh, <laughs> but but you, you've got a place to call your own, but Jesus didn't. So why is Jesus saying this? What could Jesus's possible point be? Remember Jesus's mission. He's, he's on this mission to redeem sinners, to go to the cross, to die for the ungodly, to justify the unjustified. You think this scribe wants to go wherever he goes? Just thinking about a scribe's job, in terms of how rich you were at the time, uh, if you were a Jew, the richest job you could have making the most money is being a tax collector. But of course, the reason you made money is because you were cheating people. So maybe you want a legitimate job and you, uh, you want to not you know, cheat people. The next job's gonna be a scribe. Scribes were well paid. This scribe may have had a really good house. Maybe it had two bedrooms. Anyway, uh, <laughs> but the scribe probably had a good place. And that's presumption again, but Jesus, knowing who's going to come up to him, knowing who's going to say this, he knows exactly what, what to say that's going to warn this dude. So Jesus is setting the point that he's living as an exile to accomplish this mission. Also, just coloring that a little bit, most of these people that were coming to Jesus thought he was going to conquer. He was going to be a, a, a kingly ruler. He was going to take over Rome. And so it might, might actually be a good thing. Like, yeah, man, I'll follow you wherever you go. You're thinking in your mind, yeah, I'm going to be in a palace. It's going to be great. Maybe I can eat some of the food that, uh, that gets thrown out. So there may have been that, that backdrop, that note as well. But again, what does Jesus say? He compares himself to a fox, which is a scavenger, and a bird, which poops on people's cars and camels. And that's going to be point number one we, that we need to remember is that Christians live as exiles while we're alive on earth. I'm sorry, I don't have the PowerPoint up. But, but if you want to fill that in, Christians live as exiles while alive on earth. We don't know how the scribe responded. We know later how a rich young ruler responds, walks away sorrowful when Jesus says just the right thing to convict him. This is going to squeak, sorry. I'm going to move that in the right place. But 
have you ever really thought about what it means to be a Christian, to live as an exile in your own place? Now, I hate to use myself as a, as, as a good example, but basically everywhere I've lived, I've never really gotten too attached to because I know it's only temporary. Um, and I, 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 that, that is also to my detriment because I usually let, uh, let difficult things go downhill and then it costs a lot to replace it. So that's not, I'm not saying that. But, but the way Jesus is talking, the way Jesus is saying what his mission on earth is, is he's recognizing that his time on earth is temporary. His, his purpose is singular. His goal is clear that he's not going to have a place to lay his head. He's not going to set down roots So friends, here's the hard truth of Christianity for today. A Christian is an exile. We may live in the land from which we were born, but a Christian is treated like a foreigner by those who are worldly. We're misunderstood, we're hated, we're mocked, we're scorned, uh, we're denied job opportunities, we're treated as second or even third class by family members even because of our faith. We often feel like we've got nowhere to lay our heads. It's not an easy road. We're not supposed to be attached to this world because we recognize that something's messed up in it. We're also not supposed to live like the Buddhists and like go through self-inflicted poverty uh, just, just because we think it detaches us from this world. That's not, that's not Jesus's point. But we're supposed to recognize that like Jesus, if we're going to be like Jesus, we're going to feel like we've got nowhere to lay our heads. The Apostle Peter actually addresses this feeling uh, in, in his opening words of the epistle that we call 1 Peter. He, he introduces himself this way. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, what, he, what Peter is saying there is actually quite clever. He's saying, uh, he's, he says, you who are elect exiles, and he's linking those two words before, meaning chosen to be an exile. Christians the, to whom he's writing are chosen exiles of the dispersion. Now, the Greek, the Greek term that we use for dispersion was actually something that the Jews took on for themselves. They, whenever war or famine or something crazy happened, they would make them scatter. They would consider themselves a part of the dispersion. Why? Because they were dispersed. And Peter is saying that to the Christians, saying, you too have been dispersed because they were scattered with war. Well, not war, but personal persecution, being chased out of cities. The Jews and the Christians alike were kicked out of Rome at one point. They had to go live in a foreign land. And Peter calls them elect exiles, chosen exiles. That's what it feels like to be a Christian most days. Like you're in exile. Like you're living an exilic life. It feels like we're exiled from what should be our home. Where is our actual home, though? Why is Jesus talking about his earthly life here? Well, it's because, honestly, home is, is, is with him. Home is his kingdom in heaven and eventually the new heavens and new earth. 
Jesus is addressing a geographic problem, too, though. That this world, and I, I, this, this is what I think is crazy. This is the part that really, really hits me, is Jesus is the one who created this world, man. He made it through him and by him and for him and to him were all things made. If there's any one place where he should feel at home, it's here on earth. And yet he describes it as a place where he has nowhere to rest his head. What's wrong with that picture? It's like you building a house and looking at it and going, yeah, that's great. And then while you're looking at it, a family comes in and moves in and takes it over. And there ain't nothing you can do about it. Now there's squatters rights. But but you built that with your own hands and now it's not even yours. Jesus, God made earth and then he walks in the garden, Genesis 3.8. He made it so he could delight in his creative work. And now it's broken and marred and taken over. It's a place of calamity, of suffering, of sin. The son of man who made this world can't even call it his home because of what we have done. Jesus, God incarnate, describes this world as a place where he feels like an exile. Something wrong with that. And that wrong thing is that continued sin that we perpetrate. We, we, we have to wrestle with the fact that we, you and I, have made this world where Jesus himself says he feels like he's got no place to lay his head. And because of this exilic feeling, because we, like Christ, feel that same call of, of not feeling welcomed here, we should look at our homes as temporary dwelling places. You know, we can build it up. We can make it last for generations. But wood rots. Uh, uh, things mold. Things catch fire. Elect uh, electrical outlets just go snap and blow up, which if you look in here, I love how that outlet doesn't work. And there's a black mark that goes right, right up the wall. Like, you know something happened there. Things just go poof in this world. So we should treat our homes as, as temporary dwelling places. We should love them. We should care for them. But we should more so love the fact that this is not our last place. We should uh, care for our neighbors who are needing the gospel. We should feed those that are impoverished around us. But we do it recognizing that they, too, have that same sense that this is not right. There's something wrong here. And so we show love and compassion for them. Now, moving to the to the disciple. So it's been theorized, by the way, that the scribe in verse uh, 19 was also a disciple because of how verse 21 is written. Another of the disciples said to him, the another makes you think that that last guy was a disciple. But that's not really the case, probably. Uh, most likely it's it's that now now one of. Now one of Jesus's disciples. So you got the scribe and now you got one of Jesus's disciples coming. Um, so the first guy is super zealous and gets shot down. You ever feel like that? You're super zealous for something and you get shot down. It's always disappointing. But now you got this other guy who comes up and realizing how Jesus responded to the first dude. It's almost like he's saying, hey, you know what? I'll go with you too. Wherever you go, I really mean this. But let me go bury my father first. But Jesus' response 
seems almost unreasonable, right? Dad's died. You want to bury dad? Instead, Jesus says, follow me. In other words, don't go back. Don't go to them. And leave the dead to bury their own dead. That is a really hard saying of Jesus and a really bad thing to read on a day when we have visitors. Uh, but, but that's really honestly showing what an incredible sacrifice Jesus calls us to personally. That we would forsake, like this disciple, forsake things that we feel a, a temporal calling to, things that we, we feel like we need to do, and yet we're supposed to forsake it, to follow Jesus. Let's think about it like this. Let's say you're on a missions trip. Let's say you, uh, you, you go to Guatemala. Almost can't say Guatemala. You go to Guatemala, and while you're there, you get a phone call. Well, let's, let's say it's even better. Let's say you go to Guatemala, and the Lord is really prospering the work right there. You've got, you got kids coming to the VBS. You've got uh, uh, villagers hearing the gospel. You've got, you've got people that are responding, and then you get a call. Mom died. Dad died. Car wreck. One of them's in the hospital. Your sister's dying of cancer your innate reaction is going to be to drop whatever you're doing, go buy a plane ticket, and zip out of there back home to care for your family, right? But Jesus, in this case, is saying, mm -mm, stay with me. Keep following me. Disciple Jesus is saying, you need to stay with me and do the things you're already doing. You should not depart and bury your father. You should stay with me. You're doing eternal work. Don't get caught in temporal problems. And that's point number two. The Christian must choose the eternally significant over the temporally pressing. And for anybody writing that down, I can read that again another time. But... If there's anybody in this room who is questioning whether or not God is, 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 is real or that he's good, who's maybe come in to sample Christianity, I'm sure these next words are going to place you at a crossroads, and I, I pray that you, you, you stay on the right one. But a Christian is not a person who's attached to the same things as this world offers. Our allegiance is not to solving every current dilemma, but on things of eternal, treasurable um, uh, measures. And I'm sure that kind of sounds like a holier-than-thou speaking of Buddhist. Probably sounds like we're transcendent. We're, we're sitting on a mountaintop oming. But that's not true. There are a lot of occasions where I wish I could have been where I wanted to be, but the Lord prevented it. When we were in Chicago, we had family problem after family problem, and the Lord was kind to save some of those family problems until we got home, but there was time and time again where I wish I could have been there, where I wish that my wife could have gone to be with her family, where I could have gone to my family and helped them, and yet the Lord did not see fit to let me do so. Why? Because he knew that I needed to focus on him. 
And there are times that we do that where our family will probably laden us with guilt for not being there. But the reality is that we should not regret those things. Why? Because Christ is to be more treasured than anything else. There is no doubt in my mind that this disciple, if he, if he listened to Jesus, would probably not be super welcome at the dinner table anymore. If he did what Jesus said, then he may have gotten some bad looks come the next uh, Jewish feast back in his hometown. Maybe you are in a similar situation. Maybe you've had to choose something eternally significant, something that you, you knew you had to do for the glory of God, but it took you away from something that your whole family thought you were an idiot for not attending. Rest assured the Lord had you where he intended you to be. Rest assured that all that guilt that you're holding on to goes against what Jesus is saying here. Another application, honestly, of this truth, speaking of our Sunday school class, is that there are certain things that we just cannot fix. Certain things that our hands are not strong enough to, to deal with. And honestly, we need to have in the back of our minds that we need to leave the dead to bury their own dead. It's a good phrase to remember, especially in our time of cultural and civil upheaval. There's a lot of things where our voice and our hands will be muted and bound. And so therefore, we can chase after the Lord and his kingdom, following him, whatever the cost. We must choose what is eternally significant, not what's temporally pressing. And when we do this, we can be assured that we will be treated as exiles. We can be assured that we're going to, going to be met with mock and scorn and hatred. But our concerns as Christians are very different than the concerns this world wants to throw at us. We look and sound weird. Why? Because we are weird. We're different. We're different than, than the common average person that's out there. We care about glorifying a God who many people in our culture deny by, by evoking his term. What does that mean? If you're an atheist, you have to use the word theist to say atheist. You have to say the word God in order to say you don't believe in him. I just think that's funny. We are weird. We're, we're holy. We're removed from this world in a lot of ways, and yet we're also stuck in it. We have these calls. For instance, I've got to bury my father. But, but we're not called to that. The church has catered to the world for far too long trying to look and sound like it, trying to, trying to uh, uh, I'm going to use the word infect, even though that's not what seeker sensitivity would say, but trying to infect the world with a Christian presence. But friends, we are not a disease, nor are we the cure. We're God's people in the midst of, of a broken and marred world. We can be sensitive to those around us who don't know Christ. How? By giving the gospel, by serving Christ, even when it's hard. We can do the work Christ has called us to do. We can be compassionate. We can be merciful. We can be tenderhearted while also focusing on the mission that Jesus has called us towards. We need to be sensitive. We need to be kind. 
but we don't have to act like the world to make that a reality. You can feed your impoverished neighbor. You can care for their kids when they're when they got to go to work. You can uh, you you can you can go through you can walk through your neighbor's health struggles, bring them casseroles. Because honestly, as Baptists, ain't nothing as satisfying as a casserole. But you can you can care for those around you. And, in, and when they say thank you, how are you going to respond? Oh, you're welcome. Or you can say, I'm so glad that the Lord provided for me to help you. It's the Lord who gives for us to give to the others. We can give glory to God instead of showing our own aptitude and, and talent at making the best chicken, rice, and broccoli casserole. That is, by the way, my lunch. We can, we can serve while not sacrificing truth. We will be hated, we'll feel alone, but friends, following Christ ensures that you will never, ever, ever be alone. Being a Christian is difficult. It calls for us to live an exilic life and be treated poorly for righteous deeds. May the Lord strengthen you to that end. Let's pray. God, you did not live on this world in, in an easy way. You yourself were born into a poor family. You were born in a stable, put in a manger in order to, to rest, wrapped in swaddling clothes so that you wouldn't hit yourself in the face like every other baby. You, you went through sufferings and trials that, that none of us can ever understand, to be tempted directly by Satan, to be shown the kingdoms of this world. You walked a, a path carrying your own cross all your life, even before you picked up a cross, knowing exactly what you were walking towards. Lord, you felt like you were an exile in this world you created. I pray that you would strengthen us to that same end, that we, your bride, as a church, as, as one of your body, I pray that you would help us to feel that same so that we would stop gazing at the world however we are in our own personal lives and gaze at you, following you, knowing that you are greater. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, whatever cost you face for following Christ in the midst of, of, a, of a world fraught with temporal chains, recognize that the treasure of Jesus is so much greater than any reward you'll ever receive on this earth. Go in peace, saints.